All right, so our, our scripture passage today is going to come from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 5, um, starting in verse 33, and it says this. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theudius appeared, uh, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. If it is, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So today we're gonna we're gonna spend some time talking about this guy Gamaliel because I I think there's some important uh, things to ponder here. So uh, first off, um, who was this guy? Uh, he he was he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a Pharisee. It's really the first time that Luke has um, mentioned a Pharisee amongst the Sanhedrin. We know they were there the whole time, but this is the first time he really brings him out. And I think there's a reason for that. And we're going to get to that later. Um, he's known as, in, uh, among the community, he's known as the elder. Um, like the elder. So he's, he's a strong leader in the community. Uh, he was, in fact, noted as the very first rabbi to be granted uh, the title Rabban, which means our master, rather than rabbi, which means my master. So it's this collective sort of honor given to this guy. Um, Luke also says that he was honored by all the people in Acts chapter 5, uh, verse, verse 34 there. And so the question is, why was he so renowned? Um, so he was the grandson of one of the most famous rabbis in all of Judaism. Um, this rabbi's name was Hillel. Perhaps you've heard of him. There are still schools today. I think there's one down on Bayshore here that's, that's named after him, Hillel. Um, so in, in the first century, in their day, there were two major schools of thought. On one side, there was, there was Shammai, and one side, there was Hillel. Uh, and they were sort of the opposite ends. There was really seven schools all scattered throughout the middle. But these were the two sides, and they were the, the biggest, most well-known uh, ancient rabbinical schools of thought in that day. Um, Shammai was the more conservative wing. They were literalists. Uh, they, they read the law. They followed the law. They were incredibly zealous of, of keeping the law. And that included, if necessary, the threat of violence against people who who, uh, who didn't live by the law. They used violence to enforce that law because they believed that they were ushering in God's kingdom uh, by people obeying the law and that if everyone were to obey the law, that God's kingdom would come uh, into appearance around them. Then, then God would come and reign among them and topple the Roman Empire, all right? Now, Hillel was on the other side. Hillel, they, they were a, a lot more moderate. They were, they were open to interpreting the law in various ways that centered around love. Um, they were more moderate on the moderate side of the spectrum that allowed for uh, the law to be bent in certain uh, situations so that um, really the good of the people could uh, could be found amongst the law. Um, and it's interesting because as you read the book of Matthew, especially you sometimes see Jesus siding with Shammai and sometimes you see Jesus siding with Halal. Jesus doesn't seem to have a, a particular team. Um, and he's sort of doing his own thing. He's not in the middle. He's doing his own thing. Um, so anyways, 
this guy Gamaliel is the grandson of this super famous um, rabbi, Hillel, uh, whose school of thought is still around today. So Luke tells us that one of the most fascinating pieces of information here, uh, it's, it's, it's found in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, um, where he records the words of Paul. And I want you to pay attention to this because I think this is one of the most fascinating things. Um, it says uh, in Acts 22, verse 3, it says, Then Paul said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus, uh, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, who was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. So this man who was talking here in, in Acts chapter 5 uh, is Paul's, um, Paul's teacher. He is, um, he's Paul's rabbi. He taught Paul everything he, he, that he knows. However, Paul seems to be a little bit of a rebellious student because Paul um, seems to act a lot more like Shammai. Paul seems to be violent. He seems to uh, really believe that everyone should be following the law. And uh, he was known for going far beyond the teachings of his rabbi, Hillel. Um, he'd become a kind of uh, fundamentalist, this judgmental and angry guy. So when you read the Bible, um, there's all this interplay, there's all this culture, there's all these things, uh, moving parts. And it's, it's really fun to see them all and how they kind of go together. Um, but when you read the Bible, there's one question you need to ask yourself about it. And that question right now is about Luke. And the question is simple. Why was this included? Why did Luke, writing the book of Acts, why did he include the words of, of Hillel here? Um, and why was it important uh, to Luke that the early church, the first century church, hear this man's words, uh, Gamaliel? So we need to get to the bottom of that. We need to read these words and we need to ponder them. We need to say, why, what exactly does he say that the early church needs to hear? Um, why of all the conversations that were had in their day was this one kept? Um, he doesn't tell us what any really of the other Sanhedrin says, but he tells us exactly what this guy said. Why? Um, and that's what we're going to look at today. Um, there's two things that I think that, that Luke has for his audience to hear in all of this. And I think these two things are very important for us today, especially where we are, especially in this situation um, where we are all sort of, everything's shut down. Um, we've lost uh, probably 25% of all our retirement funds, if you even had one. Um, people losing jobs. Um, the church in turmoil, asking itself, what do we do now? Um, so there's two things that I think Gamaliel is doing, uh, that Luke is doing by including the words of Gamaliel here. So I would start off with this. Gamaliel is the quintessential compromised leader. Uh, he is reading history from the wrong side. And I think um, the thing, the first thing that Luke wants us to see here is that, that this man is an ironic example of this really properly formed rabbi. He's, uh, he's supremely trained as a scholar. He's an intellectual. He knows the law in and out. He knows the Bible. And he, like so many others in his day and in our day, he cannot see the presence of God in the people standing in front of him. Um, because of the package that it is coming in. We know from our reading, from seeing the story up to this point, that these apostles, that John and Peter, who were standing trial before the Sanhedrin, we know uh, that the Spirit of God is with them, that they are doing God's work, that they are bringing the message of Jesus to the world. But the Sanhedrin can't see this. Gamaliel can't see this, even though 
they know far more about the law and the prophets and the Old Testament than probably Peter and John will ever know. Yet, they cannot see the work of God right in front of them. I think that's a huge deal. Um, they cannot see the presence of God in, in these two, uh, simply because of the package that it's coming in. The apostles are common people. They're not elite. They're barely even literate, if they were literate at all. Um, but Gamaliel uh, is exceptional. Gamaliel is, um, is what the society looks to uh, for the authority of God. Um, and Gamaliel is also looking for exceptional people to bring the message of God. Are you with me? He's, he's, basically, he's not looking for people that look like this to bring the message of God. Um, and here's the thing. For a lot of people, God, if God is going to speak to them, if God is going to appear to them, if God is going to do something good in their life, it's going to be in the form of exceptional things. Um, it's going to be in beautiful, ornate temples, right? If you're going to hear from God, it's going to be in the place of the, the temple experience with the carved stones and the curtains and the vestments and the gold and the silver and the decorations and the pomp and circumstance and the rituals. It's going to be in the beautiful things of the temple. It's not going to be, and this is, listen to this, it's not going to be on the side of a mountain where a wandering traveling rabbi has gathered uh, a thousand peasants, poor peasants, okay? Where God is going to speak is in the beauty and the high places. It's not going to be on a hillside where Jesus is over there giving the Sermon on the Mount. That's how most people think about it. Um, let's go farther. I mean, if God's going to do something beautiful and wonderful and move some people, it's not going to be in the passion. It's, it's, it's going to be in, in the, the passionate, impressive worship services. Um, it's not going to be in the living room of five people, right? That's, that's not how, how God's going to work. Um, five people huddled around these screens in order to contemplate the teachings of Jesus, in order to keep some semblance of community as the, as, as the presence of God's people. Um, it's going to be, if God is going to speak, it's going to be in the Ivy League seminary classrooms and not the prayer meeting held by eight people with iPhones in their bedrooms who are having like a FaceTime together. We are no different than Gamaliel oftentimes. We think, oh no, I need to gather in the, in the high place with the lights and the fog and the show. That's where God's going to speak to me. This is not church for me. God doesn't work in this simple thing. Um, when we think like this, we become the quintessential compromised person who thinks that God only speaks from the high places. Um, we think if God's going to speak, it's going to be in the joyous and beautiful times, right? We think when things go bad, we think, God, what are you, what are you doing? Um, obviously, God is not in any of this. That's what we think. Because God doesn't, uh, apparently in our minds, work through times of suffering and fear. God doesn't do good things through these times. Um, it's funny. When we were going through the book of Matthew, we came to the Mount of Transfiguration. And there's this moment where um, Jesus appears and suddenly his clothes turn all white. It's like this dreamy scenario. Uh, his clothes turn all white and there's like a voice from the skies. And then these ancient prophets appear next to him on either side. You have, um, you know, uh, these uh, these these premier prophets of the ancient people um, appear on either side of Jesus. And 
Peter stands up and says, well, I'm going to build a booth and we can stay here and we can stay here on the mountaintop. And Jesus says, no, 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 this is not where we stay. And it turns out that this is not actually where Jesus' divinity is shown. Um, the divinity of Christ is not shown on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's shown on the Mount of Calvary. Where instead of, it's the exact opposite. Where instead of wearing all white, Jesus is, is stripped naked. Where instead of being flanked on either side by these ancient Jewish prophets, he's flanked on either side by these criminals. Right? Instead of um, this glorious scene where God is saying, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. Instead, it's this, uh, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the exact opposite. And we so often are looking for the Mount of Transfiguration to be the place, the, the, the high, beautiful place where God is speaking to us. When the stock market is at its peak, when the land is flowing with milk and honey. Um, but as it turns out, Christ meets us at Calvary. When all the pomp and circumstance is gone, when there's only insults, when there's only fear and pain and suffering. And in this, you see the divinity of Christ. And that's different. Gamaliel cannot see the presence of Christ in this moment because of the package that it comes in. And so in Gamaliel's eyes, um, he's putting Peter and John and the apostles and the early church in the same vein as these other movements that had failed. So he's not afraid of them, um, except that this one is different. Uh, it's completely nonviolent. It's centered on love and inclusion of, of the outsiders. It's built on the backs of, of the weak and the poor, not the strong and the, and the powerful. They're not gathering weapons. They're gathering food. They're not building an army. They're building, they're setting a dinner table. No one expects this and no one can deal with this, this inclusive movement of incredible love. And so in Gamaliel's eyes, though, this was all the more reason to ignore them because it was nothing impressive. They didn't even have power and weaponry on their side. And his answer is simply to watch from afar, from this safe distance. Okay, but throughout the scriptures, we know, and Gamaliel should have known, uh, that God has always chosen the lower, the common, the younger brothers, the outcasts, and the failures to do his work through. Even Jesus, when he's picking his disciples, um, follows this pattern. I mean, in the Old Testament, you have from King David to John the Baptist, um, to the very disciples that Jesus chose. He is always choosing the weaker and the younger, um, which in that day was less honorable. I mean, the disciples that Jesus picks, too, are not, um, <clears throat> are not very brilliant young men. Uh, it's a bunch of rabbinical school dropouts. Fishermen, um, Matthew himself, uh, was a traitor to his own people. He's sitting in a tax collector's booth, so he's partnered with the empire to oppress his own people and profit off of it. Okay? Um, this was not a, a good thing to be. Simon was a zealot, basically these insurgent sort of terrorists, they carried these daggers and they would assassinate Roman centurions in crowds of people and slip away. Um, Jesus didn't gather the brightest, the most intellectual, the best, the most moral people to be his, um, his, his disciples. Um, he formed his disciples out of those people that they were. And so the question is, um, for Gamaliel, it's, it's how would they know whether this movement was from God or not? If they're always at the top, judging from the top, they never get close enough to people at the bottom to learn whether or not God is moving among, uh, amongst them. And I think that's a huge deal. Um, these Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, they cannot imagine God's own political action embodied in the common uh, and, and 
and consequently, they, they cannot hear God's calling uh, them to, to join this movement. God is calling the Sanhedrin to join this movement. But they've not spent enough time with these people at the bottom to know that God is moving among them. All right. So all of this, it begs us to answer the question in our day, what is God doing around us? What is happening that from, from our sort of uh, social location that we can't see? Uh, and why aren't we able to see it? It's probably because of our proximity to the people around us. We tend to only gather with the people like us, who are just like us. Um, my desire has always been that Watermark would be a place of diverse thought, politically, theologically, socially. Um, and for the most part, we've done, we've done okay. We've done decent. Um, we've been patient with each other and gracious with each other. Um, and I think that's all very important because oftentimes we're blind to what God is doing on the opposite side of the spectrum. Um, because it doesn't look like what we're used to, because it doesn't look like us, right? And so what we're used to, um, possibly, I'll just paint a scenario for you. Maybe what we're used to is prosperity and normalcy and wealth and comfort. I mean, we're Americans. We're used to these things. But perhaps God is working um, in the exact opposite ways right now, through a lack of prosperity, through a lack of normalcy, through a lack of wealth and a lack of comfort. Perhaps God is in that and we can't see it because we're so busy trying to get things back to normal and only looking for God in the, in the, in the normal things. Two weeks ago, let me make some observations for you. Two weeks ago, I think the world was, was more divided than I've seen it in my lifetime. I've only been around 39 years, but I have not seen our particular country in which we live uh, this divided. Um, as it was two weeks ago. But right now, it's far less divided than it's been. We're all focused on the exact same thing. We're focused on trying to save lives, to save planet Earth, right? Um, we're spending time with family. We're calling loved ones. We're playing board games. I've never played so many board games in my life. Um, we're all worried about our, our parents and our grandparents. And we're all thinking about the financial security of our friends and our neighbors. They're losing jobs. And oftentimes we're thinking about them more than we're thinking about ourselves. I think that's incredible. Um, think, think about that. Like, have your thoughts been for yourself or for those around you lately? I would wager, um, Watermark, that if you have been working to become adequately formed by the Spirit, that if you were to really think about it, your thoughts have been for other people this week. And I would more than likely bet that that's what's been going on. I think that's important to affirm. Um, and here's, a, here's some other thoughts I have. Um, right now, uh, American church leaders' eyes are being opened. I think they're seeing the real need around them. I think for the most part, this pausing of the laser light show and the smoke machines, they've all been turned off. They're sitting in churches right now, off, just waiting to light up the room again, right? Like, the, but right now they're all off. Uh, churches' production budgets are, are being reallocated towards helping people, okay? Um, right now, non-essential expenditures, the opulence 
is being slashed from their books and their budgets as they actually start to think about the livelihood of the people in their community and the sheer waste that they have grown accustomed to. After a while, without tragedy, as things just move along and get better and better, up and to the right, always, right? Up and to the right. It becomes normal. Uh, and we don't even notice the sheer waste. But now we can. Because a church's t-shirt budget, oftentimes when you look at it and then you suddenly see the need of people around you, um, you begin to realize just how useless this is and how important this is. A church's lighting budget, a church's um, sound budget. And, and in the end, you see, compared to human need, it's absolutely useless. It's pointless. And it's perhaps sinful. Um, our, it's not just church leadership. Um, church congregations everywhere are now seeing the power that they actually wield. The power is not concentrated to the top like maybe you thought it was. They are now being forced to take the things that they have been taught by their community elders and their teachers and order their lives around them. No longer gathering to have the word of God made relevant to your life, but now forming your life around the things of God. They're sending food to those who need it. They're reaching out to check in on the well-being of others. Um, these are the ways that we all should have, ex have existed up until this point anyways. This is how we always should have been living. Um, Tragedy is a tuning fork of life. Winston Churchill said, death is the tuning fork of life. Well, tragedy is as well. As I read this morning from one of my, one of my professors, David Fitch, who said that um, tragedy re reveals our theology. It doesn't form it. It reveals the theology that you already have. What is it revealing uh, to you? Uh, what do you actually believe? Are you now stockpiling food and guns? to eat that food and to shoot the other people that would come for that food? Or are you now, uh, is it being revealed to you that your, um, your first move is to provide for others? Your theology is now being revealed. Um, and in tragedy, the tuning fork is applied and the sound that your soul makes is being made sharp and easy to hear. Um, honestly, my prayer is that we never return again to really the way that things were. My prayer is that we would always be different from this point forward. That's all one thing, <laughs> somehow. Somehow that's all one thing that I think uh, uh, Luke is trying to say to his early church. The second thing that I think Luke is trying to say to the church, and this will be much shorter, believe me. Um, I think he has something to say to the church um, about hard times. The first century church... Uh, who is receiving the letter from Act, of Acts from, from Luke, um, and they're copying it and they're passing it on to other churches, they are constantly having to make incredibly hard decisions in times like these. And they likely will have plenty of times of doubt about whether or not they're, what they're doing is a good idea, whether or not it's the right idea, a smart idea. Um, they're proclaiming, uh, they're standing in the middle of an empire and proclaiming um, another Lord in the midst of Caesar's empire. And there's this persecution that breaks out constantly all over Rome because of all this. And so now in light of that, I want you to put your, 
put yourself in the mindset of these early Christians, constantly under threat of persecution for proclaiming another Lord and another kingdom in the midst of the empire and the emperor. And then you hear this from the mouth of, of Gamaliel, from the hand of Luke. He says, if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. I love this because it's as if Gamaliel is speaking to the early church and his own words end up encouraging the church to continue to work um, against the interests of the Sanhedrin and the temple. It's quite amazing. I, I'm sure a lot of these early Christians are sitting around wondering, are we doing the right thing? This is really dangerous. Um, is this really the way we should be? As many Christians are right now thinking, um, there's two ways I could respond to this crisis. I could get very selfish and do all of these things from the flesh and take care of myself and my own. Um, or I could be a part of the movement of God and love and generosity. Um, and we're wondering, is this, though, as I try to follow Christ, is this the right way to be? And I'm sure this is the same question that a lot of these early Christians are asking because they're in the middle of persecution. Um, and so for them, Luke says, if your purpose and activity is, a, is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. This is for us. This is what we need to hear. If what we were doing before all of this, if what the church was doing before was not really of God, if it was of us, if it was about tribalism, if it was about the show, if it was about cultural identity, if it was about power, money, politics, rebellion, any of that, if it was about any of that, making a name for ourselves, um, then it will fail right now. It will fail. But if it was about a people following the spirit of God and declaring that, that Jesus alone is king, if what we were doing really was about God and about the kingdom of Jesus, then it cannot be stopped. It can't be stopped by social distancing, by the failures of earthly governments, by economic turmoil, by recession, by the threat of violence, by the downfall of democracy. Nothing can stop even the smallest group of people who are dwelling in the kingdom and who are doing the work of God, who are following in the path and the footsteps of Christ. If it is of God, it cannot be shaken. The love of your family, the love of your community, the, the loyalty and faithfulness that you have to each other. That is the stuff that is from God. That is the stuff that will stand. The competition for money and power and influence, the divisions of theological idols of tradition, uh, the looking down upon other expressions of, of, of Christian worship, that stuff's going to fall. Now, I think it's done. And I think... That this will end up, we will look back on this as being a time of great awakening in the church. Um, I think God is teaching us that, that we are not self-sufficient, that we actually are intricately bound together um, in each other's lives. We are dependent upon each other. Um, I think we're going to find that we are, we are only as strong as the poorest and the least taken care of in our communities. That is how strong we are. Look at the very bottom. That is how strong all of us are. Um, we now understand that a homeless camp is not just something we can ignore in a situation like this. It is a threat to our very existence. And so we cannot afford to allow um, this level of poverty and homelessness to, to continue exist, to exist as, as it has before if we want to be a whole and thriving people. 
as God wants us to be. They must be raised up. They must be taken care of for the good of all of us. We are only as strong as, as, as the poorest struggling family. Um, God is teaching us that our joy is not found in our comfort. And in fact, it never has been. Okay. Um, as we are forced to stop and rest, uh, we might find that times of stillness and rest are exactly what we've been needing this entire time. Uh, as we are forced to be locked up with our spouse and our kids, we might just discover how amazing they are and receive them again as a gift. Um, as we are forced to admit that we are no longer in control, we might just realize that we actually never were. Um, that our security is not found in these things that, that we cannot take part in right now. And in all of this, uh, we might remember that Jesus has been here the entire time. That we were never alone in any of it. I have two things left for us uh, this morning. Um, one of them is I've asked the the, the prayer team to write a collect prayer for us. We've been studying prayer not too long ago, about a couple months back. And the collect prayer seems to have really taken off in our community. People regularly praying these things. Um, and it's basically a, uh, a look back at some of the things that, that God has done um, and then bringing it into our very moment now and grounding our requests in what was, what God has done so that we know um, uh, that it is a, a, a request based upon the character and nature of God. And so I have a call like prayer for us that we, we're going to pray for the next two weeks. And then they're going to get, bring us um, another one as well. Um, so here it is. Um, before we go into communion, uh, if you would read this prayer and if you would pray this with me. Oh God, lifter of the lowly, our healer, be with us in our isolation. Bring connection where there is disconnection healing uh, where there is disease, trust where there is fear, love where there is disdain, caring where there is indifference, provision where there is lack, and bind our hearts together with our siblings all over the world in unity with yours. Out of many, make us one, as you are three in one. In Jesus' name, amen. And so if you have the elements of communion. Um, if you would join me now, um, the, the, the body of Christ symbolizes, the, the bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you. Um, as he suffered and died on the cross, the wine symbolizes the blood of Christ poured out for you. Um, this is how salvation enters into the world, through the broken body and the poured out blood uh, of Christ. We, the church, are that body. And so, church, body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ poured out for you, for your healing, for your salvation, for your forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Father, be with us this week. Go before us. Be within us. Follow behind us. Be with us on either side guiding our thoughts and our actions. You are the Savior. No one else is. Jesus is Lord. Allow us to follow you this week. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Grace and peace, Watermark.
have the best quarantine week of your life.